I'm Courtney Smith. And I'm Elise Sharp. And we are two Shakespeare nerds who decided to make a podcast about our love for Shakespeare. In this podcast, we will tackle as many dimensions to Shakespeare's plays as we can by looking at the text, examining the historical context in which it was written, and how the text is viewed through modern lenses of feminism, racism, classism, colonialism, nationalism, ableism, all of the isms. We will discuss how his plays shaped both the past and present, and, as actors, how his plays can be responsibly performed today, all while trying our best to approach his works without giving in to bardolatry. So, Shakespeare anyone? Hi, listeners. Elise here to remind you of all the ways you can support the podcast and the work that Courtney and I do. First up, we have a Patreon. Our Patreon patrons receive exclusive bonus content. Every month, we do a roundup of Shakespeare-related content we have found online. We also share Patreon-exclusive bonus episodes of the podcast. These look like extended versions of episodes you've heard here, collaborations with other Shakespeare podcasters, and Courtney and I doing reviews of Shakespeare-adjacent media, like TV shows, movies, and books that are inspired by or loosely based on Shakespeare and Shakespeare plays. Patreon patrons also receive snail mail from the podcast, and some levels even vote on future episodes of our podcast. If you are interested in checking out our Patreon or just the Shakespeare-related names we've given the tiers of support, head to patreon.com slash shakespeareanyone. The link is also in our episode description. After you've done that, please rate, review, and follow us on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Your review might even make it on an episode. You can also follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and tell a friend. Word of mouth is our best form of advertising. Thank you so much for all of the support you give the podcast. Now, on to the episode. Hi, Courtney. Hi, Elise. Oh, no. <laughs> Hi, Elise. Hi. How are you today? I'm very tired. It's been a very long week. Towards the fall, everything starts to fall into, like, our laps as podcasters and life is getting busier. So I'm a mm -hmm. little bit tired, to be honest. Yeah, it's our, like, race to the end of the year rush right now. Mm -hmm. And I also think... We were talking about this before I pressed the record button, but it's kind of incredible that here we are at the end of three years of making a Shakespeare podcast and our sixth play. I can't even believe that. I feel like I was just writing the script for Titus Andronicus for our synopsis. I feel like you just asked me if I wanted to do a podcast with you about Shakespeare and our first one could be Macbeth. So <laughs> so it's a whirlwind. It's yeah. a whirlwind for the two of us. But What is time? Yeah. But... Today, we are here to wrap up our series on Titus Andronicus, and we are going to do that, as always, by looking at a couple of notable productions. That's right. So first, we're going to be talking about Julie Taymor's 1999 film adaptation, Titus, and then we will talk about the 2017 production by the Royal Shakespeare Company, which we mentioned in an earlier episode, I believe is the one where they did the experiment with the heart rate monitors. Mm-hmm. So let's get into this Julie Taymor film. Yeah. Titus 
stars Anthony Hopkins as Titus, Jessica Lang as Tamara, Jonathan Rees Myers as Chiron, Matthew Rees as Demetrius, Harry Lennox as Aaron, Angus McFadden as Lucius, Alan Cumming as Saturninus, Laura Frazier as Lavinia. It was directed by Julie Taymor, as we've discussed. And let's get into it. What were your high-level impressions of? Yeah, my high-level impressions were it's, well, it's a surrealist adaptation. That was part of the genre. Mm -hmm. And there were a lot of choices that were made. And some of them succeeded. Others did not. I thought that, first and foremost, the acting was really great. Mm -hmm. Great cast. A lot of cuts were really great. The script was solid. I think it was a adaptation of Titus where like, if you don't know the script, you at least know what's happening. Yeah. Like my problem with it was that if it was going to be surrealist, I wanted it to stay surrealist, but it felt like there were like five genres happening in this one world that really confused Mm. me. And when it was simple, it really excelled. When it was making a statement, it was a little bit like, confusing mm-hmm. a little like what what is the motivation yeah so that's really like my big takeaway from this Titus was it was quite an experiment and I don't know how much of it succeeded but there definitely were highlights yeah I had the same I felt like it was a real the script and the cut of the script was really well done and there's some rearranging that they did to like help tell the story in a better way for the film medium as an example um they change the order of 1-1, which is this incredibly long scene where so much happens. And they kind of actually separate it out into separate scenes based on the what's happening and the groups that are involved. I also found that when it was simpler, when Tamor just let these incredible actors act and say Shakespeare, it was incredible. Yeah. Those were the highlights. And then there were moments where I was like, I feel like we're being surreal for surrealism's sake instead of necessarily it being informed by the story. Yeah, informed by the story or we have set something up and then we're not going to revisit it ever. Yeah. And those were all stylistic choices made on top of the really effective storytelling of the play Titus Andronicus. Yeah, it is, at least for me, important to note that this movie came out three years after R plus J. And that was very high concept, Romeo and Juliet. Tamor does surrealism and other works of hers, like across the universe, there are moments of what is happening for the sake of what is happening, you know? Yeah. But I feel like it does it in a more sophisticated way, a way that, of a, you know, a more experienced artist. And you can definitely see, I think, some influences of, R and J in some choices that are made in this. Yeah. I wrote a couple of words to encapsulate some of my impressions of this. And I I hate to be very negative about it, but I wrote gritty. Gritty was one word that stood out to me. And mm. I don't really like gritty. I think like when I was in my early 20s, I was like, gritty plays. That's right. Like we <laughs> like to do gritty plays because it was kind of the thing in in that in that era yeah. of theater making but now I look at gritty and I'm like well, why are we doing this is this just for shock value and I th- I thought this came across in some scenes as gritty a little bit pretentious and that's a shame 
given all of those moments you talked about mm-hmm. that are like simple and really like let the actors lean into the text and the word and the relationships in the story. Yeah. I do think the word that I kept writing over and over as well is brutal, which I think is true to Titus Andronicus's. Titus is a brutal script. Um, there's a lot of violence that happens, and this piece does not shy away from the brutality of Titus Andronicus. Mm-hmm. I agree. Just starting from the beginning, I really liked, but I felt like it this is the thing that lands on that camp of like, I really liked this. This was a surrealist thing that they did. I wish it had continued all the way through. I wish that like it had been brought full circle um, was the framing device set up at the beginning. So it starts with a kid playing with toys, a variety of toys in like modern, a, kitchen. Yeah, a modern, modern day kitchen. kitchen, playing war, you know, using ketchup as blood. It's really messy. And then a explosion goes off and a character that we'll see later as a messenger grabs the boy and brings him out of the house. And then the house is rubble and it's actually in the center of like a Roman Colosseum. Right. It set up the boy who we later see as young Lucius as this kind of like outside eye. I was like, oh, is this all happening in this boy's mind? Mind. That's what I thought too. Is this a story that he is concocting? The rest of the play kind of lives in this world of, I call it the like, the A Knight's Tale version of medieval, where it's this elements of modern, there's elements of classical kind of melded together. And I was like, oh, and that makes sense because he's been playing with action figures and green army men and like Roman soldiers, are Roman soldier dolls, toys. Yeah. Yeah. And robots. Like these are all his toys come to life. So mm-hmm. cool. <laughs> right. Yeah. Cause then once they're in the Coliseum, I actually really liked this scene. It was like a very dull, dark scene where like there oh. are all of these uh, soldiers who are doing like a funeral procession, I mm-hmm. think. And it's very like static, staccato. The music, the soundtrack slaps. The music yes. is, this soundtrack is so good. <laughs> yeah. It's a wonderful way to start the play, especially like if you've seen the cover of Titus and like Anthony Hopkins has like blue paint and also like dried dirt on him. It's mm-hmm. very much like, I mean, I guess I'm just thinking of like Pompeii or something like that, where you've got the bodies yeah. that are all like dried dirt and stuff. It's the return of the soldiers from the war. So they're bringing back the war dead. And they also have Tamara, Chiron and Demetrius and Aaron in chains being wheeled in as war prisoners. Yeah, I love that scene. Yeah, I agree. I think that this scene unfortunately set me up for like really high expectations. Mm-hmm. And then, like you said, things didn't come full circle. Like every once in a while, we would see this young boy who we didn't know yet was young Lucius. Right. Still dressed in modern modern dress, you know, 1999. Uh, walking around and kind of like witnessing kind of like a voyeuristic mm-hmm. sort of thing. And then he, once young Lucius becomes part of the text he then becomes young lucius but then we don't really see the boy observer again yeah we don't get any answers to this nor do we like kind of see a return to the boy's world at the end he kind of just walks away in a very long protracted exit yeah i wish it had come a little bit full circle and i wish that he had returned to the boy observer if that was what was trying to be done Yeah, I was thinking maybe this is some large, like, investigation of children's play and, like, children's innate brutality and and all that kind of stuff. Like, war games. War games, yeah. That's why I was thinking with that. And then 
we don't get any of that at the end. Mm -hmm. Moving forward from that scene. So this is where the like kind of rearranging happens is we see Titus's story play out all the way through burying his sons and the sacrifice of Tamara's eldest son really clearly before we're introduced to Saturninus versus Bassianus. And I felt like the Roman politics, Saturninus v. Bassianus, is really clear and was really set up well. Yeah, I think it was super effective. This film does a wonderful thing, which is incorporate the aspects of making a film and telling Titus versus just mm -hmm. doing a staged filming of Titus. Yeah. So yeah, there's like two factions of supporters, one for Bastianus, one for Saturninus, and they're waving flags and they're like chanting. There's parades. There's parades. Yeah. You know, the parties are going up to the, um, I the guess, steps the, of the Senate. Senate. Yeah. yeah, the steps of the Senate. I did look up that filming location because I was like, this feels really fascist. And it turns out that it was filmed outside of one of Mussolini's big architectural like symbols. Yeah. Oh, yeah. wow. <laughs> the Square Colosseum. And according to the internet, this building is an homage to the Colosseum and is a symbol of fascist architecture and propaganda, which Ooh. I don't know if Tamor was trying to communicate anything in that, but they scouted and picked a place for a reason. So mm -hmm. I think it's interesting then to consider this very, at least like brutalist architecture. And then the Andronikai home is more homey, lived in. They have more nature around them. Mm -hmm. I feel like that is an intentional choice, whether or not like Tamar meant to link. I, I did feel like Saturninus was intentionally linked to fascism in some of like stylistic choices. I feel like there was that like dichotomy intentionally put into the world of the court versus the world of the Andronikai. Yeah. And uh, speaking of aesthetics, one thing that really confused me, and I think it's because I don't think that the worlds were, I, mean, I don't know. Let me just say my thing and then you yeah. can tell me your yeah, thoughts. Yeah. The costuming, the world of all of these characters as one, one world in one time period was really confusing to me because the Roman soldiers wore a lot of like classical style uniforms and mm -hmm. then they, they showered in like a classically Roman bathhouse. The Visigoths look like Vikings and then Lavinia was dressed in like a Coco Chanel looking dress. And then Saturninus mm -hmm. and Bassianus look like in that same era. But then Chiron and Demetrius dressed like they were like 90s club kids. They look like they're from Romeo plus Juliet. Exactly. Like, yeah. I mean, I'm sure the costuming was othering all of them from each other for reasons, but it felt like it wasn't, it didn't piece them together to me. I didn't bump up against it because I went into it being like, oh, we're in that, what I call the A Knight's Tale world where time period doesn't matter. We're just wearing what we want to wear. Um, it's more about representing the person than like being in the same world. world. Yeah, which I see that considering I know what this film is supposed to be. But it was one thing that like stood out to me was just like, if I saw stills from different scenes, I would not guess they were in the same movie. It can feel a little bit like whiplash to see people who are so different when we're not and i use the a knight's tale because i think a knight's tale does it w well or like marie antoinette sophia coppola's marie antoinette where it's like mm -hmm. it we are in marie antoinette's court but there are converse and there is pop music and i think that this was just maybe too many things yeah i was gonna say i don't mind that i don't mind anachronism i mean heck Shakespeare uses anachronisms all the time, like referencing like clocks chiming or whatever in Julius Caesar when they would have used sundials. So I don't actually care about anachronism. I, I guess my thing is I wanted it to make sense. Like you said, like too much was happening. It was in like an aesthetic whiplash for me. It was just like, yeah. 
where are we? What are we doing? What's happening right now? So Yeah, and I think Tamor as a director tends to like leaving audiences sometimes. And that's where like, where are we? What are we doing? State? Mm -hmm. I mean, like, I'm not, I'm like, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, and maybe it was intentional, you know? I mean, it might have been, but that's just an observation. But I want to go back to Demetrius and Chiron. I found like they came across very much teenagers, young kids, impressionable. And in that way, yeah, they're going to follow what Aaron says. One thing that I was like really aware of or hyper aware of Saturninus, Chiron and Demetrius, they were like quite effeminate, mm-hmm. which is fine. But they ended up being like three of the most vicious evil characters mm-hmm. in the play. And that was something that really rubbed me the wrong way. It was like Chiron and Demetrius being young and impressionable. I was like, hell yeah, that's great. But they kind of could have read as like queer, bi, something like that. And the characters that were more traditionally masculine were like the good characters. Yeah. And so I might just be reading too much into it, but it just felt like all three of them, they were given this like overly sexual, maybe like yeah. crossing a line in terms of the straight, Yeah, you know. I think that like this piece really plays into the goths being overtly sexual, more feminine, that that is what Tamara brings into the world of Rome. And that's why she's so, you know, they're depraved. But I think that this kind of leans on that. Also, I found this production to also set up the Andronikai to not be completely empathetic. For a while, I was like, who are we supposed to be rooting for here? Mm -hmm. I jumped us ahead too far, but we can go back to the Senate. We can go back (laughs) to the politics of the play and move a little bit more linearly for our listeners. I really kind of go from, you know, the dynamics that are set up in the beginning and the politics and the kind of difference between Tamara and Saturninus's court you know, having a party versus like the reality that the Andronikai are living with, where they are arguing in a tomb mm-hmm. over the fallout from what is Act One, Scene One. And I thought that that was a really good way of showing the difference between Tamara and Saturnites do not care about the Andronikai, and the Andronikai are made miserable and are infighting. Yeah. I think it did a good job of showing how much Titus Andronicus wants to get back into Saturninus's good graces at this beginning before the hunt and the rape of Lavinia. Yeah, I think so too. I think that one choice I didn't really like was that early on when Saturninus is crowned emperor, there's this shot where we see Titus see Bastianus and Lavinia kiss Mm -hmm. and he notices them. And then Saturninus asks for Lavinia and says, do you approve of this? And then he goes, or it'd be an honor or whatever he says and I was just like why would you I'm supposed to like Titus why would you make him see Lavinia with Bastianus and then have him approve her being Saturninus's yeah I will say I did like how much this film showed that Bastianus and Lavinia were together same I liked that as well because I think that the script as is is ambiguous as whether or not he is actually he and the brothers are just like no we don't want Saturninus and we prefer Bassianus or whether Lavinia has a choice in this matter yes <laughs> exactly yeah I agree I liked that part but I didn't like Titus seeing it because it, it did make it, me go who are we supposed to be rooting for I don't know I feel like I'm supposed to be like caring about how badly the goths have been treated at this moment 
Yeah, like <laughs> you mentioned how much Titus wants to get back into the good graces of the Goths. Uh, there's this scene where I believe it's it's after Lavinia and Bassianus have ran away and, you know, been retrieved. Mm -hmm. But Titus is really moping about his position and he's sitting in these Roman ruins. Yes. And the Goths and Saturninus are partying and they come down. It's I'll find a day to massacre them all. That scene was a great scene. And I loved Jessica Lang looking into the camera and say, I'll find a day to massacre them all. Yes. That and then as that ended, she's climbing stairs and we see her climbing stairs and we hear Aaron starting his speech that begins, now Tamara climbs Mount Olympus. I'm paraphrasing there. Yeah. I was like, man, like, I feel like I'm supposed to be rooting for Tamara and Aaron right Tamara. now. <laughs> Because, yeah, 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 I also don't like Titus right now. I think they also, you know, kind of really lean into how terrible Bassianus and Lavinia are to Tamara and Aaron um, when they discover them during the hunt. Uh, it was like, they really make them jerks. Yes. I liked that Lavinia's injuries were symbolic. Lavinia, when her hands are cut off, they are replaced with, like, twigs. And it creates like yeah. extra, like it's extra brutal. I thought, yeah, I thought it was a really cool idea, but upon execution, I think that it like kind of for me detracted. Like I don't want, it's like I want somewhere between blood everywhere <laughs> and very much like making it obvious that this is what happened to her. And then this like very brutal symbolism. Yeah. Because she's standing on a stump in a field, mm -hmm. a very vacant field. Chiron and Demetrius run away and she's in this like in a slip. Mm -hmm. And her hair is disheveled. She's been ravished that way. And then her hands are like, yeah, it's quite grotesque, yeah. actually. Like the spiny kind of like branches that are her fingers. Yeah, it's it's a bit of a gut punch. Mm -hmm. I do like that we see the boy we've talked about who up until this point has been an observer go to like a doll maker mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. get wooden hands for her. And then he, that's kind of yeah. the moment that he becomes young Lucius. She is given these prosthetic hands, and I was like, "Oh, actually, I liked that choice. I I found I it. I liked that idea. Very. Yeah, I liked that choice as well. It allowed for us to more readily see the kind of like signs that Titus talks about her having. I liked that one as well. It, it was like a I don't know, like a symbolization of some sort, maybe that really made sense to me, and it wasn't gruesome. Mm -hmm. And also, he played with toys at the top, and now he's got yeah. all hands. And. This is kind of the point where, like, we get into this simplicity that we've been talking about, and that maybe it's because we're with the Andronikai for so long, because basically from um, when Marcus discovers her, discovers Lavinia and brings her home to when she, you know, writes in the sand, it's mostly pretty simple. Just actors saying Shakespeare. <laughs> That's really nice. Yeah, usually, usually it's quite successful when when you just let the when text you've got and good the actors. actors. Yeah. <laughs> say good text and then we go into the orgy which is flashing us back to what's been going on at court for tamara and saturninus mm -hmm. and i feel like the intent for me it felt out of place because we just hadn't seen them in so long so it was like wait where are we and why are there naked bodies everywhere and i think the intent was to try and show how depraved Rome has become with Tamara and Saturninus at the helm. This is what they're doing. But um, the scene right before that is Titus and young Lucius going around town and gathering supporters. And that is a scene that's like 
I would say kind of like half lives in this kind of like simple world that we've been in and in this like absurdist because it feels fun. It feels like a grandpa and his grandson playing a game Mm -hmm. and then all of a sudden it's like Mm -hmm. titties. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. It it felt very jarring to me and I'm not a prude, but it's also like, you, you know, it's one of those things where I was like, what, what purpose does this serve besides, like you're saying, show the depravity of the Visigoths? And I think at that point we had already, we already mm-hmm. understood. We already understand. And also, uh, it's also like, oh, are you shaming people who engage in this kind of sexuality? Like, yeah, sexual. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Especially because there was like a moment where Chiron and Demetrius were like, in bed or like on the bed with Saturninus and Tamara. And I was just like, what kind of family, you know, I guess, I guess there might be some textual implications of them having inappropriate mother son relationships, but yeah. I don't, it was just felt like a lot, like it felt out of place. It felt like gratuitous mm-hmm. versus intentional. Or I mean, it was probably intentional, but it felt gratuitous versus informed by the text. Yeah. And I, and I feel like for me as a viewer, like the way that I'm piecing together, like, morality good and bad yeah in this play is like oh the people who mutilated and sexually assaulted the girl is the one who has orgies Mm -hmm. and does gay stuff and has an inappropriate relationship with their parents so it's just right lumping all of that into these people who are rapists and tying sexuality and even promiscuity to to people who are who you know commit acts of mutilation and rape is problematic i think that's what i'm hearing you say yeah. like yeah and moving forward to revenge murder and rape chiron and demetrius are dressed as drag queens and then you don't see on the andronaki side of it anyone being effeminate if they are male presenting and literally the only woman like can't speak like yeah so like yeah yeah i i didn't get much madness from Titus? False madness? I think I saw them playing at some madness, like him yelling out the window. Yeah. But then... But that was really... That was it. He seemed with it the whole time, which I didn't mind. Yeah. And that could be for us as the audience and be in on the joke or the the plot. We're in yeah. on the... Yeah, What's exactly. We're in yeah. on the plot. Versus trying to genuinely feign madness and then the reveal is, aha, as, you know, when he's <laughs> yeah. going to cut the throats of the, you know, the, voice, the boys. Yeah. 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 I'll admit by this part of the movie, I was a bit bored. I don't, I hate saying that. I hate saying that. Yeah. I mean, I kind of also, the revenge, we're talking about like the one revenge. revenge. Yeah. Yeah. I was also kind of tuned out and I was just like, what is this? Why do they seem to be a- appearing as a fever dream? Oh, and then they're actually here. Yes. It was more like, maybe not bored, but like tiresome. Yeah, maybe so. Because I did key back in during the dinner. Yeah, I think I keyed back in around the time that Demetrius and Chiron's throats were being cut because it's always a joyous time to get to that and be like, (laughs) goodbye. (laughs) Bye. (laughs) But yeah, and then we get to the dinner table. Yeah, the dinner scene. Which had some choices. One choice that I liked was Lavinia seeming to consent to how she would die. Mm-hmm. I was like, that feels very actually like for, for this movie up mm-hmm. until this point, seems very forward thinking 
you know, he has interpreted her signs correctly. Yeah. And yeah, she is in his arms for him to do this. Yeah. Yeah. I want to talk about the pies for a second. I what this is one of the few Shakespeare plays with meat pies. I think that you can talk about some human meat pies. Okay. First of all, they're enormous. <laughs> and I don't there's like two of them. And I don't know. Um it seems like a lot. I I looked at those two boys and I was like, that's not <laughs> they're scrawny. There's no way. They were scrawny. They're scrawny. <laughs> small like Jonathan Rees Myers is not he is not in bend it like Beckham shape he's not in Tudor shape yet he is a baby yeah, they were little skinny minis was there really that much meat on those two boys then I was like oh like if I hadn't been squeamish already from like the blood and guts of this play on top of all that it didn't seem like the pie was cooked through uh <laughs> Which would never, which would, which would never, never work on Great British Bake Off. Oh my gosh. Like Paul Hollywood and Prue wouldn't eat that. It was pink <laughs> they, in the middle. Yeah, they look at it and be like, I can't do it. I can't eat that. It's ground meat and yeah. it's pink in and the it's... middle. <laughs> it's like, Titus, we're so sorry, but we are sending you home. We're sending you home. It's raw. Yeah. Like Gordon <laughs> Ramsay would be like, it's raw. And he would, <laughs> he would send it back. And then the deaths happen really quickly, which is true. Mm -hmm. And then when we return to the Colosseum and it's kind of all played out in front of audience Roman members? citizens. Yeah. Audience members. Yeah. I I like wrote down that the banquet scene in the Colosseum is like a piece of theater for everyone to see. And then so was this whole thing a piece of theater because we've returned to the Colosseum? Right. The first location. And then I expected to do the reverse because we were like, okay, now we're back in the Coliseum. Yeah, step away to wrap up. Yeah. And then instead we just like watched the boy walk out of the Coliseum for like five minutes. Yeah, with Aaron's baby. With Aaron's baby. It's minutes of him mm -hmm. walking into like the sunset or like yeah, something like sunset. that to no destination. Just escape, escaping this world. And rewatching the beginning again, knowing how it ended, I was like, oh, Titus at first is like Ro like addresses Romans. There's people we can't see here, so it, I was like, that is like a nice full circle for the Colosseum. I wanted a full circle for the but boy. the boy, yeah, yeah, I agree. But yeah, that's that movie. Yeah. So RSC. Yeah. My general thoughts were there were things I enjoyed. I struggled with this production, to be very honest, because the. Uh, version of it that I watched where it was uploaded seemed to have trouble with the sound so that took me out, out of it yeah understandably but overall much like Tamers there were things that I enjoyed and there were things that I didn't enjoy with this same this began with a four minute long movement sequence is what I called it yeah it did Sometimes I think that those kinds of choices should be left to the the cinema hmm. where we expect ourselves to be walking down a street and having these movement pieces that are like grounded in the fact that you're making a movie. Mm -hmm. Like a lot of the times like with Midsummer, one of the really successful parts of the Midsummer film that we watched was that they incorporated locations and sequences where like servants are getting the wedding festivities ready, you know, like. 
but that's how movies function. It's showing, not saying. This seems like this would be like really successful in a film medium. It felt too long for me. Too long. And I already understood what was happening in this room at the 10 second mark. Mm-hmm. I was like, oh, is this setting up characters? Kind of, but not completely. No. It basically sets up that there are different factions that are fighting. And that's it. I was like, this could have been cut in half. And I would have gotten the world that we're in is a world divided. Yeah. I wrote in my notes, IMO, please just start the play. (laughs) That's how I was feeling. Just get Marcus up there. And I think that like Tamor's, this play did a really good job of setting up the politics of the play. Yes. And I think that they really built the Saturninus versus Bastianus as character types. Saturninus being the like ego inflated brother. He's the career politician. He's the career politician. He's Yeah. We should also say this is very much set in a sort of modern world in like, I would say either late 2010s or early 2020s. Yeah. And Bastianus is it set up to be more of a grassroots organizer? Mm-hmm. Um, seeing one one essentially as written is something. That is a wild scene. Mm-hmm. Even though it wasn't like broken up like it was in Tamor's, it did feel like they were very like solid pieces where I knew it was happening with the Saturninus versus Bastianus, and then also Titus and the soldiers returning. Mm-hmm. It felt very clear and crisp. Yeah. And then Tamara and her sons being prisoners and then not being prisoners anymore. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And then I also feel like this Andronike family was quite loving. Uh, the family all gets together and they hug. Like young youth, Lucius is on stage and they take a selfie as families do. Mm-hmm. Yeah. When they're reunited, when they're reunited after reunited. a bunch of them have been at war. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It was a nice one-one. Mm-hmm. And I felt the same with one, too, with Aaron, Demetrius, and Chiron. I actually have no notes about it. I was like, yeah, solid. Mm-hmm. Chiron and Demetrius and Tame, they, they seemed like similar to the Chiron and Demetrius in Tamor's, but older. And it seemed like their danger it was very rooted in toxic masculinity. That's exactly what I was going to say. You just, took, I was like, older and more toxically masculine. Exactly. <laughs> yep. Yeah. Yep. Which, that was much more successful to me. I, I liked, like you said, the age of Tamor's, but the motivation. Toxic masculinity is a perfect way to put it. I was like, yeah, you could see these people as guys who are, you know, who work in like a corporate field and like party on the weekends and like don't really think about anything other than themselves. Mm-hmm. And then we're in the hunt. Um, Yeah, in the hunt, just like the Tamor adaptation, Lavinia and Bastianus are mocking Tamara. Mm-hmm. I think this one, it was done in a way where they were more interesting. Um, whereas Tamor's for me, I was like, oh, this is really off-putting to these two. And I like I liked them so much mm. because I had seen them interact and be in love. This one didn't foreground Bastianus and Lavinia having an existing relationship. Mm-hmm. And their mocking was less cruel than Tamor's for me. It was more like, we don't like you and we're going to like be like, we see you. Yeah, and we don't take you seriously. And we don't take you seriously. Yeah. There is a brutalization of Bassianus mm-hmm. in this piece. Mm-hmm. They uh, cut off his penis pretty graphically. There's a lot of blood. A lot of blood. Mm-hmm. The pit is real cool. I thought so, too. Before we get to the pit, I just want to say 
the graphic nature yeah we can talk about later but it was very upsetting to watch yes Lavinia holding Bassianus and then also like have the brothers holding her and stabbing Bassianus it was a very upsetting moment yeah yes yeah I, we didn't talk about how upsetting the Tamar one was. The Tamar one was also watching Lavinia plead with Tamara was really, really brutal. Mm-hmm. And this one, again, was also just brutal and devastating and really graphic and disturbing. Mm-hmm. The pit is literally in the middle of the state, in the stage. So actors were able to, like, fall into it. And I was like, oh, yeah, well done. Yeah. Well done. There was a really great pratfall with, mm-hmm. I think, Mucius. I think yeah. when Mucius... With Mucius and Quintus. Yeah. 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 One of them falls, just whoop. Yeah, he's like walking, doesn't see the pit, and then down he he's goes. He's gone. He's gone. He's, yeah. It was fun. Which makes me wonder if the globe did anything like that, because they have the pit for Somebody, hell. Yeah. yeah. Although this is before the globe, but if they redid mm-hmm. Titus. Yeah. In the aftermath of the rape of Lavinia... There is so much blood on stage. Chiron, Demetrius, and Lavinia are covered in it. And it presented a problem for me textually. I also found it to be a problem from when Marcus found Lavinia. Yes. Yeah. When Marcus finds Lavinia, she is covered in blood. There's blood pooling on her clothes in her genital area. And her pants and her underwear are are pulled down. Yeah. And I wrote, how would you not know? When we read it, and when we talked about early modern law, they couldn't prosecute or do anything about it until they knew that someone had been raped and who did it. And I was like, so are we just going, he knows that she was raped and he just doesn't know who did it? Because there's absolutely no way that you could see somebody in that state and not know what had happened. What the crime was, right? Yeah. That's the problem I had with it as well. The, there's just no way. It was so unbelievable. First of all, it was unnecessarily bloody and graphic. Mm-hmm. Um, second of all, I don't know how they would have thought this would have passed for audience members listening to these lines to be like, ah, yes, her loving uncle who wants to help her doesn't realize what happens when she is in this state. Right. I will say they shouldn't have made this decision but it was quite tender when he did dress her, when Marcus did yes. start to dress, yeah. dress his niece. That was a very tender moment. Mm-hmm. It was very tender. It is just that, like, he does not have any reaction to seeing her. And if you saw somebody, like, Shakespeare would have given us language oh, about blood. Or an O. Yeah. Yeah. And Marcus does not react. Yeah. Yeah. Based on early modern law with the hue and cry, he can try to prompt Lavinia. And he tries to, but... You don't need to prompt somebody in that condition. You don't need to prompt somebody. Yeah. The second act starts and they show the passage of time as well as the ghost question mark of Titus's sons. Yes. Okay. Yes. <laughs> I'm glad that's how you read that too. I was like, I think that's what they're doing is that like Titus's sons are now present. Yes. I read ghosts. I read, okay. yeah, yeah, I read Ghosts. And then uh, they merged what I called the family dinner scene and the book scene. And I was like, I like that cut. They don't need to be separate scenes. I also enjoyed that. I didn't even notice. I was just, it just flowed. Yeah. yeah. 
just float. And another interesting change they made was uh, because they were in a house and they had just had dinner. Marcus pours salt on the table and Lavinia uses the hilt of the knife to write stuprum Chiron, Chiron Demetrius. I thought that was really effective and very smart. Yeah, very smart. And then the table disappeared into the space that was the pit. And the pit came back as a pool. And I was just like, mm-hmm. I really like that. And we have a hole in our stage and the hydraulic lift, and we are going to use it multiple times. Especially because it was a nice surprise for us in the audience because Aaron is sitting yes. out on the like beach chair. And Demetrius, I believe it was, is like on a towel. On a towel. And then all of a sudden, Chiron like pops out as if he had been swimming in the <laughs> pool and he's like drying yeah. off. And I was like, I didn't expect that. It was a really fun moment of theater. Mm-hmm. Oh, I totally didn't write this going back. I totally didn't write about um, the hand scene. Oh, yeah. So the scene where Titus has loses his hand his cut hand, off, yeah. loses his hand, was such a cool theatrical special effect. They wheel out a surgery table, essentially, mm-hmm. and the actor, you know, very slyly swaps out his real hand real hand for a rubber hand yeah like he like makes sure to move it so it looks like he's drumming his fingers and then they saw through it maybe a little too easily i thought that as well but it is a cool like they tried to make this really like realistic effect and it's pretty effective yeah i mean i think it was a really good stage effect so let's fast forward after the pool scene which was cool yeah and then uh Titus was pretending at being mad. Mm-hmm. I really like this. I thought this was fun. The arrows scene was toys. Yes. That they shoot over. Super fun. Yeah, especially watching Titus and young Lucius, who were the two who were um, in charge of this play military. And then the other adults were like playing along, but it was really for like young Lucius and Titus. Yeah. Tamara becoming revenge. It was not my cup of tea, that revenge scene. I also did not like it. I wrote that it dragged on. It felt lackluster for, like, all these other things that this, like, production invested time in. Yeah. And it was just such a slow pace. Everything was so slow. And it's, like, Mm -hmm. it's also not the most interesting part of the play, so... Yeah, and we're so close to the end. Yes. It was two concepts trying to be smashed together. And neither executed well, because I also struggled with Titus's pretend mad has taken on another form, and he's in a cardboard box, and he's got, like, a beard, different hair. I didn't like that, and that's because I tend to dislike when movies or plays use homeless imagery or unhoused Mm -hmm. imagery to say, this is madness. Yes. That usually rubs me the wrong way. I agree. Yeah. And for me, it was also, like, we don't get an aside of Titus winking to us as the audience Mm -hmm. that he's not mad and i was like i actually prefer him being completely lucid versus this yeah again i was like i feel like we as the audience don't know what's going on yeah and what we're gaining is that tamara thinks that titus is mad but we don't gain any other information from him Mm -hmm. and at this point we should be rooting for him yeah and i always do like a reveal but i feel like we needed to be in on it yeah Yeah, I would have liked to have been in on it because I don't want the gotcha moment to be on me. I want the gotcha moment to be on Chiron and Demetrius. Yeah. And so we as the audience need to be in on it to really like enjoy 
that moment for the revenge. Speaking of gotcha for Chiron and Demetrius, that was a really epically staged death. Yeah. It, again, like a special effect that was really effective. Quintus and Martius. Martius. Mm-hmm. The ghosts of them have like joined in the kind of observing of the second half of the play and they hold Chiron and Demetrius up as they're hung upside down by their ankles and their, you know, necks are cut and there's a lot of blood. And then Chiron and Demetrius are flown up and out. Yes. Like up into the uh, rafters. Mm -hmm. To the dinner scene. One big meat pie. I did believe. Yes. I also believed it. And getting a little bit ahead of ourselves with the reveal. So grotesque when like the flesh of the skin is pulled out. As if Titus has skinned just the facial features. Their facial. Yeah. And put them in the pie as a reveal. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Very, very gruesome. Mm-hmm. Another production that has Lavinia clearly even more explicitly accepting to yeah. Titus killing her. Yeah. Literally nodding and walking towards him. Yeah. Yeah. And again, like it was so fast. Um, I appreciated that. I think that another production could try to draw out how quickly all of the deaths happen in that dinner scene and nope it's just all of a sudden everyone's bang, bang, dead bang. Mm-hmm. bang 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 and marcus has is running up to the steps of the Capitol to you know tell everybody to calm down and that lucius is here now the emperor now the emperor yeah and then as lucius is letting everyone know about the burials for each respective dead person a seemingly Alive ghost zombie Alarbus, Tamara's son that was murdered in the beginning that set this whole thing off, walks up to the podium and grabs grabs Lucius. Yeah. So like we've talked about Titus's sons reappearing. For me, I was like, oh, this is all revenge, representing revenge, you know, and how it's going to continue, essentially. Yep. So like overall. I liked this production. I think I would have liked to see it in theater, but fascinating to watch. Mostly, I think, really interesting choices that mostly work. I agree. Yeah. I think we could say that about both of them is like really interesting choices that mostly work. Yeah. I think if you want to watch a Titus that makes more sense according to most of the text and my understandings of Titus play, I would say watch the RSC one if you want to see people getting creative and making, well, if you want to see a director being creative and making choices that are cinematic and artistic and visually interesting, Mm -hmm. watch Tamor. I don't think many of her choices made sense to me, but they're still interesting. And I think that there is room in filmmaking for films like Tamor's. I just wish that it was more holistic. Mm. Mm Mm-hmm. I think I would agree with that. I think I would just add, like, the Tamor is a really lean cut of Titus. And while the aesthetic choices were not 100% our cup of tea, someone might enjoy them. Yeah. 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 And that was Titus Andronicus. Another play done. Yeah. A tough-to-swallow play done. Uh (laughs) Uh-huh. Which is perfect 
perfect with all the meat pies. Yeah. Maybe our next play will have fewer food puns. Yeah. Specifically cannibal puns. Let's choose one with less cannibalism next time. Okay. Deal. (laughs) Thank you for listening. Our kind listeners, we can no other answer make but thanks and thanks and ever thanks to our Patreon patrons. Lisa Vanderkolk and Ashton Francine. I'm Courtney Smith. And I'm Elise Sharp. This is Shakespeare Anyone? Thank you so much for listening to Shakespeare Anyone. Works referenced in this episode are available in the episode description. Our theme music is Never Ending Minute by Sounds Like Sander. If you would like to support us, it would help us out if you would hit the subscribe button, like us, leave a comment, write a review, share us on social media, tell a friend about us, all the things. We'd appreciate it. You can also support the podcast at patreon.com slash Shakespeare Anyone. Patreon patrons get access to exclusive bonus content throughout the year. The link is also in the episode description. For more, you can visit our website, shakespeareanyone.com, follow us on Instagram at shakespeareanyonepod, or Twitter at shakespeareanyone. For Twitter, that's Shakespeare Any and the number one. Every other platform is spelled out like the name of the podcast. Now, because you listened all the way to the end of the credits, here's a completely random Shakespeare quote for you. From Henry VIII, Act Two, Scene Three, said by Anne. I do not know what kind of my obedience I should tender. More than my all is nothing, nor my prayers are not words duly hallowed, nor my wishes more worth than empty vanities, yet prayers and wishes are all I can return.